Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Pistol shots ring out in the barroom night. Enter Paddy Valentine from the upper hall. She sees the bartender in a pool of blood, cries out, My God, they killed them all. Those, my friends, are the opening lines of Bob Dylan's Hurricane about the boxer Reuben Hurricane Carter and how he spent almost 20 years in prison after being wrongly convicted of murder. Carter's story is the subject of a new documentary series by the BBC World Service called The Hurricane Tapes and I've been enthralled by the first six episodes. Podcasts vary in format from one guy or girl on a mic to large-scale productions like the Hurricane Tapes. But how do they get made? As a journalist, how do you get the time and the resources to tell a story that many already know the end of? I spoke to Steve Crossman, the BBC sports journalist and broadcaster whose idea it was to make the Hurricane Tapes, and I asked him when he first heard the story of the hurricane. Oh, um, so that would be about the year 2000, because I'm pretty sure that's the year that the Denzel Washington film came out. Um, And I would have been, what was that, 19 years ago. So I would have been 14 years old at the time. Um, I remember loving the movie. I mean, why would you not love the movie, particularly as somebody, you know, I'm absolutely obsessed with sport and I love movies. And I was a big Denzel Washington fan. So it's just like everything came together for me. Um, And slightly later than that, I mean, 14 is probably a bit too young to be a fan of Bob Dylan. Uh, But I sort of picked up Dylan in the last kind of five, 10 years. And obviously you, you hear the song, the hurricane song on the end credits of the movie. So I was aware of it. Um, but then I heard it properly for the first time. And I think, yeah, so probably been aware of the story for about 18 years now, something like that. But it was certainly not anything I ever kind of realised that I would end up working on. When you make a podcast like this, which requires a certain amount of resources, I've just listened to episode six, and I'm assuming that there's another couple of episodes to come, right? You have to sit down and you have to pitch that to somebody who has essentially a checkbook or the electronic equivalent, and they have to say, yes, mate, we're going to give you the money to do that. What was that process or what was that meeting like? How did you go go about convincing somebody to let you do this? Um, Yeah, so there's 13 episodes in total. Um, and it's interesting, like, I'm a big believer, this is the first podcast I've made, um, that it's quite hard to have a great podcast idea, or I hope a great podcast idea, before you've got basically like a good documentary idea. So my idea, actually, I pitched this to my boss in like, September 2017 as a one hour documentary. Because I said, look, it's <clears throat> it's 2017, so it's 50 years, exactly 50 years since Reuben Carter and John Artis were first uh, convicted back in 1967. So it would be great to do a documentary on this. There is other work that exists on this story. There's the Dylan song and there's the Denzel Washington movie. Um, but I think it would be great to do something on what sort of Reuben did after he left prison. Because, you know, you watch the movie and it basically just says Reuben Carter went on to work for the wrongfully convicted. But I knew from doing a bit of research that there was a lot more to it than that. And I knew that I could get an interview with this guy who Reuben had basically freed from his deathbed. So that sounded like a great idea for an hour documentary. And I realized that quite a few of the people 
um, who were involved in his story were alive. But the moment it became a podcast was about four months later because me and my producer, a guy called Joel Hammer, um, spent a couple of sort of on-off trips in America. And it was on the second trip where we first heard about the idea of these Reuben Carter unheard tapes. And it was kind of a combination of the more research you do, the more people you meet. We realised that actually we weren't doing sort of a new treatment on an existing story. We were doing a story that had never been told before because actually the true story, you know, no disrespect to Denzel Washington and Norman Jewison who made the film, no disrespect to Bob Dylan, the true story has never been told. So at that stage, we thought this could be more than a documentary. And then when we found these tapes, you know, the idea of having this guy who, you know, is a very, very uh, famous symbol of wrongful conviction in America, but passed away in 2014 the idea of hearing him in his own words was completely irresistible so it certainly didn't start out as a podcast just tell briefly for listeners who aren't familiar with it the reason i love this podcast so much and the subject matter so much is i remember the first time i heard the bob dylan song hurricane and i was absolutely blown away by the fact that this was sort of you know it was folk music and it was social justice and it was journalism all rolled into one and it was an extremely powerful song one might say it was an extremely biased in favor of reuben carter but how did reuben carter and john artis wind up behind bars just describe for me the night and what happened at the lafayette bar and grill and and how it came to be such a huge case in the american legal system yeah sure so june 16th 1966 was um what they call pot washers night in patterson new jersey which is a you know it's, it's a pretty derelict part of new jersey it's not a very nice city at all and reuben carter and john artis sort of knew each other to say hello to but weren't good friends they were both out in the same nightclub dancing it's called um the night spot uh, john was like a really talented high school track star he just got a scholarship to go to college in colorado and he was basically just spending the summer in his, his home city of patterson um waiting to go there reuben lived in patterson he was like the most famous athlete from patterson he was a big time boxer about a year or so previous he'd had a middleweight title fight so he was a big deal um and everybody knew reuben and a lot of people would have known john as well now about a mile from where they were sort of partying at 2 30 a.m these murders took place when two black men and we know there were black men because there were two survivors of this shooting who both said two black men came in and shot up the whole bar so they shot four people three of them eventually died from those wounds and one survived as far as the the first trial and we also know there were two black men because there was an eyewitness looking out a window called patty valentine who said she saw the two men run to their car and that they were definitely black men and unfortunately for Reuben Carter and John Artis, I mean, either they were the two men and they got into Reuben Carter's white rental car or the white car was incredibly similar to the car that Reuben Carter was driving that night. So Reuben Carter and John Artis left the night spot in this white car. John basically said to Reuben, can I get a ride home? And he said, yeah, but you drive. And the police stopped them and as I say, either it, you know, it was the same car because it was them or it was a car so similar that they stopped them, arrested them, questioned them. And this began this long story, which went through, you know, two convictions, 
which were overturned on both occasions spanning almost 20 years. Reuben Carter, of course, at the time was, he wouldn't have been as famous as Muhammad Ali, but he was certainly a very, very well-known professional boxer. And in New York and New Jersey, he would have been very, very prominent uh, in terms of the local sort of sporting circles. People would know who this guy was. Cops would know who he was. But he also, um, he wasn't the kind of guy to back down. You know, you get the impression sometimes when you listen to hear him, to him speak in the 40 hours of tapes that you discovered that, you know, he's quite an aggressive man. He's not the kind of man who takes fools lightly. So do you think that might be something that, uh, you know, that somebody might have singled him out? Somebody wanted to take him down a peg or two by arresting him for this crime? Well, that is basically cuts to the heart of this entire story, because Reuben would say, yes, that's exactly what happened. And there's quite a famous incident where there was something called the Harlem Fruit Riot in New York City, whereby several black kids were shot in the back by cops after knocking over a fruit cart. And Reuben Carter did an interview with a journalist in which he said, um, if that had happened and I was around effectively, he said, I would I would go out and shoot cops, long story short. And the line he used, the famous quote was, I know I could get a few of them before they got me. And Reuben says, you know, I was so outspoken about racial injustice that the cops were desperate to get me off the street. But the reality is you won't be able to find, and believe me, we've looked, <laughs> for any other example of Reuben Carter talking about race at the time. So he wasn't really a big what you might call race man. You know, he claims to have been quite good friends with Malcolm X, although there's not much evidence of that. Um, he claims to have marched with Martin Luther King, although there isn't any evidence of that either. So Reuben would say he was persecuted by the police because of what he said. And look, ultimately, if you're going to give an interview in which you say you would quite happily kill police officers, you can't be surprised if police officers treat you in a certain way. But framing someone for murder, as Reuben would tell you, is obviously the most extreme of the extremes. But in terms of the character he was, um, I think this is one of the major things that we've been able to do in the series. You know, you listen to the Dylan song, you watch the Denzel Washington movie. He was a saint. You know, he was like the nicest guy in the world. The reality was he was a guy who'd been to prison a couple of times. You know, his crimes included um, attacking somebody with a bottle. His crimes included mugging um, an old woman at knife point. He was a pretty horrible bloke but the question of course is whether or not he was a murderer uh, tell me about the discovery of these 40 hours of tapes because I, until the point where I listened to your podcast uh, I never heard his voice and I'm going to tell you that when I first sat down to listen to the first episode I thought okay I didn't know how many episodes are going to be in the series and I thought what is this going to tell me that I don't already know and then you dropped this bombshell of 40 hours of tapes of Ruben speaking I was going whoa this changes the game <laughs> here how did you come across those things how did you catalogue them how did you decide what excerpts to use in the hurricane tapes now we're getting on to the reason this has taken me since 2017 to finish <laughs> um so the, the way we found the tapes is in our first trip to america i think it was probably the first trip to america we interviewed this author so obviously as you can imagine you know you, you come up with an idea for what at the time was a documentary obviously you try and get in touch with as many people as humanly possible because ultimately if i'm doing a story which is focused if you like on civil rights era 1960s New Jersey, I better have people who were there. I can't tell that story because I wasn't a black man in 1960s New Jersey. 
I'm a white man who was born in 1985 in England. So we needed the, the people who were there at the time. It was quite easy to find people who knew Carter well. It was quite easy to find people who grew up with him. But actually hearing from him was always going to be the one thing we couldn't do until we interviewed a guy called Ken Klonsky, who's a really good friend of Ruben's. And also they wrote a book together. And this book is called Eye of the Hurricane. And it's all about Ruben's psychological journey in prison. So it's a lot of like, it's, I mean, it's very spiritual. It's like, it talks all about, you know, he talks for hours and hours about how he could sort of, he started to see through the prison walls and what he has in common with the Dalai Lama, all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying that's not interesting. However, when we got these 40 hours of tapes and we had them all transcribed, we realized that there was so much in these tapes, which was specifically about the case, which was specifically about Ruben and Ruben's upbringing, that it was an, I mean, it was a gold mine. It's easy to say, but there's just so much stuff in there. And, and you know, the other thing is, it's kind of like a fly on the wall thing. Even if we just found 40 hours of Reuben Carter being interviewed by the press, he would speak in a certain way, like we all do when we were in an interview. Mm. Um, you know, you, you can't hear the full sort of tea side of my voice <laughs> when I'm on the radio because it's just it's just something that you kind of click and you think, right, I'm being interviewed now, I better pronounce words correctly. But, you know, he says things um, in the most recent episode, there was a line where he said, you know, that he was asked, what was it like for you in prison? And he said... Uh, I, he said 9-11 had nothing on me. I killed everyone on the planet while sitting in those filthy cells. He would never have said that in a formal interview. Yeah. So I asked Ken at the time, I was like, listen, did you record any of your conversations? And he said, yeah, but I don't know where they are. And um, so he gave us basically the name of this college in Boston where he'd intended to send the tapes. It's like the official Reuben Carter archive. We got in touch with them. They didn't have the tapes. And eventually we discovered that the last person who'd had them was another one of Ruben's friends, a guy called Tom Kidron. And it was somebody we'd already interviewed. And again, he said, listen, I'm really sorry. Um, I remember having these tapes at some point. I definitely don't have them now. And we kind of dropped it. And then like two weeks later, Tom called me and he said, oh, I've just been cleaning out my basement and I found these tapes. Like they've been here for a decade, just totally untouched. So he sort of airmailed them to us. We paid to have them transcribed because even we don't have time to sit down for 40 hours and write out word for word what Reuben Carter said. And then we, we went from there. But I mean, just reading the transcripts for the first time, uh, it, it was an amazing experience. This podcast is supported by you, the listener. In recent weeks, I've been to Helsinki and frozen my ass off while reporting on how they are winning their battle against homelessness there. I simply can't afford to do this kind of reporting without your support. So if you can, go to patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm and chuck in a fiver a month so I can keep the lights on. Back to Steve and the Hurricane Tapes. It's uh, it's fascinating to see the way podcasts have gone. I remember I was in Russia for the World Cup last year. I was in uh, Sochi, where we're going covering all the games in Sochi. But 250 kilometers up the coast in Galenchik was where the Swedes, the Danes, and the the Icelandic teams were based. Uh, so I was driving up a back, and you know, even though it's only 250 kilometers, it took five hours to drive. Uh, you know, because there was accidents and there was all this kind of thing. And I listened to so many podcasts up and back. So I'd load up the phone, then I connected to the Bluetooth of the car, and then I drive up and back. And it seems to be it's sort of explosive 
massive growth. Now, again, you're not here to speak for the BBC. You're here to speak as the reporter that made this. But in general, um, you know, is podcast the big buzzword now? Is it what MySpace was to musicians 10, 15 years ago? And do you see a future for the kind of project that you've just completed and that you're putting out there every week with an episode of the Hurricane Tapes? Or do you see this, you know, changing and go back to YouTube? Or where do you see the future of it? God, I hope it's uh, I hope it's only the start of a continuing medium because it just gives us opportunities to tell stories in ways that you've we've never had the opportunity to do before. I, mean, I think it's here to stay because it's not a new technology. Do you know what I mean? It's 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 just recording things like we would do for radio. It's not like a fad, um, and it's also been around for quite a while now. You know, in in the sort of digital age and everything, people always seem to have this theory that. Um, that attention spans are short and people don't want to listen to something if it's only, you know, if it's a clip and it's longer than a minute 30, then people aren't going to be interested. Um, but, you know, I, I was watching somebody from Copper 90, the um, the digital channel, talking about this the other day and saying that their latest piece of work has like an average, um, people who watch it on average watch it for 23 minutes. So there's always different ways to find out how long people listen and this kind of thing. And, you know, sometimes that shapes the way we as, I hate the word content, but as, <laughs> as content makers put together pieces of journalism, that's better. Yeah. Um, but I think it's here to stay. I don't see why it wouldn't be. Well, I think that the two guiding principles are what are you trying to do here, right? And if you're trying to get clicks and sell advertising, well, then you're going to do the 90-second clip or you're going to do the clickbait headline. But if you're here to tell stories, you, you know, you can't tell this story. Like, I'm so delighted that this has gone from being a one-hour documentary that you plan to make into whatever, a 12-part series or 13-part series because it, it gives me so much more depth around the thing. And I'm currently, I've been sort of tr trying to get a documentary entry off the ground about something in America for the last two years and it finally looks like it's going to happen and I have to you know I have to put a guy's life into 43 minutes and I just I don't know if it can be done and do the story justice but what do you do day to day at the BBC because you're a sports reporter for the BBC World Service does that mean that you sort of bounce over to BBC Radio 5 Live do you work on a regional basis what, what does your day look like from one end of the week until the next? So my staff job is sports presenter um, and I work between BBC Radio 5 Live and BBC World Service. So I work for both of them. Um, I don't really ever do anything for anybody else. But actually, you know, a fair amount of this project has been done around the day job. So, for example, I was at the World Cup in Russia, too. Um, I, I covered uh, England for, for Five Live. So I was up in the tiny little town um, in uh, Zelenogorsk, just south, I think it was, of, of St. Petersburg right. for for five weeks. Um, it was. It was beautiful. Uh, so I do a lot of major tournament football for World Service and for Five Live. Um, hopefully going to the Africa Cup of Nations later this year in oh, Egypt. Well. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very varied. The stuff I do for World Service takes me, you know, I've been lucky enough to go all over the world. And there was, that was kind of a build-up process, I suppose, to, because I'd never even made a one-hour documentary. You know, I'd, I'd done several pieces which are kind of more focused on issues maybe than what necessarily goes on on the pitch. Um, so I've made, like, uh, plenty of what we would call packages, like seven or eight-minute colourful pieces for the BBC's World Football Programme, you know, going around massive european derbies but doing it from more a uh, a sort of a sports news perspective so for example a few years ago i went and did the the big turkish derby between fenerbahce and galatasaray but well. the story wasn't like this is a massive game it's really exciting there's loads of fans here the story was um it was a year on from the the geji park protests yeah. um when a lot of, of protesters were killed and for the first time the sort of ultras fans groups of galatasaray and Fenerbahce had formed a 
joint ultras union to kind of protest against the government so you have these two clubs that hate each other their most passionate fans coming together to form a fans group which includes both of them which was like a spectacular thing to do um so that was kind of my build-up to to making a piece of this sort of nature it's just i mean it's been so much bigger than anybody could could ever have imagined i feel very lucky that you know, it's been backed all the way. There hasn't been a moment when we've said, oh, actually, do you know what? We need another couple of weeks to do this or that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, there's give and take. It means doing a lot of stuff. Like today, I'm I'm in the office. It's my day off. But I'm in because I've got a load of stuff to do for episode seven, um, which comes out next week. So if I don't do it, we won't have an episode seven. <laughs> Brilliant. It's actually worth pointing out that Richard and Manny, who do the, the World Soccer Show on the BBC World Service, are absolutely tremendous. I think Manny was over there watching the uh, the Asian Cup recently and yeah. he just does some fantastic journalism he's been here in Sweden as well he was passing through us to, or up towards Östersund ah. there recently as well you know I've actually done a couple of things for them several years ago as well but uh, two great guys and a show that's always worth listening to just because of this sort of different perspective how much was the fact that you're a young man from Teesside uh, <laughs> reporting on something that happened before you were born in a country that you have tenuous links to so to speak what was that like for you did you feel like you could bring a new perspective to the story of Reuben Carter the hurricane the the criminal case no um I think Reuben had to do that um essentially I was I was listening to your um episode that you recorded recently about framing which I thought was very very interesting not least just because you managed to talk for 20 minutes without stopping which anybody <laughs> should should applaud anybody for but um but this this is where framing comes in um Ruben had to tell Ruben's story. Ruben had to tell us what it was like in Patterson, New Jersey in the 1960s. And John Artis, the other man who was convicted, does that. And so does Johnny Carter, who was Ruben's close friend and cousin. If it wasn't for the fact that, you know, so many people are still alive, hmm. there wouldn't have been a podcast series. It, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, so I don't think me and being from Teesside and anything, I don't think there was anything at all that I could bring to the narrative of Patterson, New Jersey. The one thing I could bring, I guess, is um, I've worked on quite a few pieces about Colin Kaepernick, the yes. NFL, you don't know if we should say former NFL or not, because no team seems to want to take a chance on him at the minute, quarterback who was the first person to take a knee during the national anthem, which was all to do with the relationship between the black community in America and the authorities. And then you think about other things like the Black Lives Matter movement, like what happened in Charlottesville. One thing that did occur to me before I started making this is that, it, you know, it wasn't just when I was like, oh, a 50th anniversary. You know, anniversaries are great and sometimes it can be the basis for a story, but it shouldn't be the basis even for what I thought I was making, this, this idea of a one-hour documentary. But it's the fact that, you know, one thing I could say, even as a layman, is to say, wow, aren't there a lot of similarities between what I know of 1966 America, just having you know studied history at school, mm. and what I know of 2018 and now 2019 America? And so the first thing I did was was speak to people and say, you know, how, how do you see this? And, you know, Reuben Carter's cousin said to me, um, you know, Patterson, New Jersey and America in general has not felt this way since 1966. You know, yeah. this is as bad as it has been since 1966. So I guess, you know, if I was going to say I could bring something to it, it's the it's the knowledge behind the current situation there having covered it. But um, yeah, I mean, we have to give all the credit to to Ruben because, you know, when you listen to him talking about growing up with with um, his father having to move the family from what would have been, you know, not just 
Georgia, but proper Jim Crow Georgia, yeah. up to up to New Jersey, um, it really kind of, uh, I think, I hope, takes you to that time in a way that I simply cannot and shouldn't be able to do. Yeah. Now, the reason I ask is because um, every about once a year, Lilian Taram, the former French World Cup winner, tremendous footballer, played for Parma, Juventus, Monaco, he comes here to Sweden. He has a foundation now. And what he does is he goes around the place talking about racism. And every year he comes up here and we sit down and we argue for an hour with an interpreter. I understand French, but I can't speak it back to him. So, you know, she has to interpret my answers for him and that kind of thing, you know. And we had this discussion about that. And I was saying, how I feel bad going off and writing these, up these interviews with him because he's the one who should, it should be his voice and not even filtered through sort of my experience because we had this one discussion about racism where, you know, I was saying, especially around the time of Trump and the rise of the far right in Europe and that kind of thing, I said, you know, things are getting worse. He goes, hold on a second. If you look over the longer historical perspective, you know, if you go back, you know, there was a time when people were being lynched and it's not that long ago. So he still thinks that in general things have improved. And you know what? I, I can't say, like, I don't have the experience to say that he's wrong. So, you know, th this is why, um, you know, when we come from outside to tell stories about places like America, places like Asia, places like Africa, and I'm not sure if you felt the same way when you went to Russia. I remember thinking when I went to Russia for the World Cup that I have to listen to these people. I'm not here to sort of, you know, to tell them what they should think of their own country or even what I think, but I need to listen to what they have to say about it. Do you ever get that feeling when you're on your travels that, you know, it, we go there with our baggage as journalists and all the, the content that passes over our desks and all the research we do, would you ever go there with the feeling that you know i'm just gonna to have to park this now and just let my eyes and my ears tell the tell me the story i think that's one of the th i mean I, I studied broadcast journalism at um university and i remember one of um one of my best mates uh may we had to make like 15 minute short what they would have called a short radio documentary very short radio documentary and he went to do a piece about a um british swimmer who trained near where his, his mum and dad lived. And the idea was he was just going to do a piece about, it was like, you know, it was going to be like this guy getting ready for the Olympics, which now we would think is is fine, but it's a bit of a sort of a puff piece. But we were like, you know, we were 18. So you're not expecting sort of Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. Um, but he went there and this guy didn't turn up for his training session. And he was interviewing his coach and his coach started talking to him about how this wasn't the first time he hadn't turned up for his training session. And he was starting to get concerned about whether or not he still had the, the love of the sport. So my mate dropped the idea of this, you know, swimmer gets ready for the Olympics and changed the piece totally to be about has he fallen out of love with the sport and why? And that is the best example I can give of what I believe, which is the, the best journalism is you, you should always, you know, you've gone with a story, you've pitched a story successfully, so you're going, going out to tell that story. But the second you realise that the story is something different, you've got to drop what you had and go with what you find, because that's journalism. And also because of the fact that, you know, the, the reality is if you've come up with an idea, like my idea initially was to kind of do, you know, the 50th anniversary of this, of this thing that happened yeah. in a short-form way... Um, if you along the way find out that something isn't what you expected it to be, you know straight away that you've got a piece of piece of completely, you know, brand new journalism there. Because if you didn't know it existed, despite the fact you'll have done copious amounts of research on the story, then the chances are nobody else does either.
It's uh, kind of like that line that Napoleon used to have about his journalists that he would prefer them to be lucky than good. You know, I always go back to when I talk to young journalists about sports. I was walking out of a McDonald's on Krasachik Boulevard in Kiev and I bumped into Sergei Bubka, the former pole vaulter. And it just so happened that he was working for the Olympic Council at the time there in the Ukraine. And he said to me, or in Ukraine, and he said to me, you know, I want to bring the Winter Olympics here. And I literally, I was working for the Reuters news agency at the time and I ran back into McDonald's and I wrote the story in about 15 minutes after we had the conversation was on the wire you know and that was literally just you know it wasn't even that I went there looking for any story it was just oh there's a bloke you know um, finally Stephen you, ha- you know the other thing as well is yeah. just just to add in there as well is from what you were just saying about like the idea of going and living things what you've just said completely um, explains that point because you said the Ukraine and then you corrected yourself to Ukraine yeah. and so many people go to go to Ukraine and make stories and talk about being in the Ukraine when actually Ukrainians would tell you that it's really offensive they find it really offensive when people say the Ukraine yep. and don't correct themselves so straight away there obviously you've shown that you know you've, you've gone somewhere and made journalism but not just made it from a sort of behind the curtain point of view, you've spoken to somebody and somebody has at some point told you, as as happened to me, oh, by the way, can you call us Ukraine, not the Ukraine, because we hate it. There you go. No definite article. But that's the brilliant thing. We were sort of laughing before we pressed the button here. You were looking for a meeting room there at the BBC. And I was saying, I'm so <laughs> delighted that I don't work for a big organisation anymore. Because to me, you need to go to Patterson, New Jersey. You need to go to Kiev. You need to go to Galenshik. Yeah. You need to go to these places and find the real stories. How much of your time is spent in the office every week? And how much, well, obviously you're presenter so you have to be in the studio in front of the mic but do you prefer to be in the studio with the control board at your fingertips or would you prefer to be out in the field telling stories like the story of the hurricane well the first thing i should say is uh, we don't have the uh, the control board in front of us i just have the microphone somebody else does all of that i'm afraid oh so it's you just like get the microphone and the light that rules your yeah, life when you're yeah, in there, yeah 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 <laughs> that's right local when i was when i was in local radio we had to drive the desk as well as they say but here it's um here it's just talk it's it's a joy and um, no i mean i think everybody i don't know anybody who would prefer to be in a studio you know it, it all depends what's happening if somebody said to me oh we want you to present this show next week and it's around a commentary of, of Bournemouth against Chelsea and you have the option of going to Bournemouth or being in the studio I'd probably pick the studio because I live in Cheshire yeah. so having to go all of that way for the sake of one day is a bit of a nightmare but if it was in Manchester or if it was you know an hour or two away I would always prefer to be in a stadium I think we all would and you're right you know and obviously hopefully it goes without saying you know we went to Patterson New Jersey we spent a lot of time in Patterson New Jersey we went to the bar where the murders took place of course we did you know you can't really tell the story unless you you visit these locations and that's my personal thing when it comes to um, podcasts and, and documentaries I'm all about colour I love colour and it, and it can be any tiny little thing and sometimes it's difficult to come up come up with new creative ways to do this but you know if I was giving advice to somebody starting in journalism or somebody who wants to make a podcast um, I would say have two recorders and make sure one of them is on at all times yeah. because it's just the little moments it's that you know even if it's just turning up on somebody's doorstep and knocking and saying hello and when you introduce yourself it's just a little bit of color that takes you there you know we when we did an interview with you know the main part of our interview there's obviously lots of chunks of it with john artis we were at pains to kind of paint the picture of where we were so you know we tried to describe in quite sort of um broad brushstrokes being in john's car and then you can hear john talking and you hear his laugh as he's talking about being you know physically compared to like a major hollywood actor morgan freeman because it does look a lot like morgan freeman um and and i think it's just those little moments that that make it that our script editor said it quite well actually he said 
with the John Artis interview, which is in episode two of the, the podcast, he said, once you do all that setup, it's like, you know, somebody is sitting down next to you with like a thermos of coffee. They're settled in. They're ready to hear what this person has to say. If you just say, John Artis was convicted of the murders alongside Ruben, and suddenly he's talking, you know, what does that look like in your mind? It's like when you read a book, you know, when you read a book, all of the description takes you there yeah. and lets you form a picture of it in your mind. I just think that's absolutely vital. It paints the picture. I remember making a radio documentary about a guy here from one of the tougher suburbs in Stockholm and he went over and he tried out for LA Galaxy. You can pay $185. As long as you're under 25, you can try out for LA Galaxy. So we made a documentary about this, if this was just a bluff to make money or if there was actually a chance of getting there. And I remember doing exactly what you said in a Denny's diner in Carson, just south of Los Angeles there. And the waitress was from somewhere in the deep south. And when she came over to take the order and we just, we kept all that in. And, you know, she became like a surrogate mother for him a little bit. You know, she was asking him every day how he was getting on with his training and this kind of thing, you know. But she made it. She was the one who put us there. You know, when I work for Reuters, they always tell us, show us you're there. Give me the detail that shows us that you were on the spot there. But to, to round off, because I've taken a lot of your time now and I know that you're a busy so man on your day off. I mean, I want to hear episode seven, so I want you to get back to work as soon as <laughs> possible, my friend. What's next on the agenda for you, apart from the remaining episodes that you have to, to edit? Uh, where are you going next? You were saying the African Cup of Nations. Uh, you know, what's left that you haven't done that you really yeah. want to do in your career? I hope there's plenty. Oh. Um, well, I've been quite lucky in the sense that I think I need to reassess that soon, to be honest with you, because I always thought, you know, growing up wanting to be a journalist, it's one of those things you, you don't think in terms of stories when you're growing up. You think in terms of events. It's just kind of yeah. natural. So I always thought, you know, I'd love to go to the World Cup. And I've done that now. And I've been to a World Cup and a European Championships. Um, I, th I think that from an events point of view, I went to the Olympics in Rio, but I only lasted about four days before I got very ill oh, no. and had to come home. whole podcast has been really helpful for me because um because of about a year and a half so that kind of made me take a step back from the kind of day-to-day -day of you've got a deadline you're chasing this story you're on air at this time you've got to make sure you do this it was the first time when i'd actually been able to kind of sit back um, in the aftermath of that and take a little bit longer on a project that I was working on then. So that definitely gave me kind of a bit of a, a taste of doing something which has a much longer wait for a payoff. So I think I need to reassess, really. I don't, it, there's nothing immediately that I'm like, oh, I'm desperate to do that. I think I've done all the things that, in terms of places that I've gone, that I could have ever asked to go to. Um, but yeah, the Olympics in Tokyo, that's very much on my agenda. I say that. Who knows if my boss is going to send me or not. If he listens to this, you might think, you know, maybe not. I don't know. We have to make sure the rest of the podcast is good first. Otherwise, it's a waste of everyone's time and money. Well, whilst I'm waiting on episode seven, I'm going to be writing a letter of recommendation for you in Tokyo. Thank you. And Steve, I very much hope to see you there. Thank you so much for talking yeah. to me about the story of the hurricane absolute pleasure thanks very much there you go the background to the story of the hurricane there a new episode of the series drops every Monday and so far it has been absolutely brilliant I'll be seeing some of you in Dublin in the near future for four live podcasts at the International Bar if you want the details or to get your hands on the last few free tickets go to at Philip O'Connor on Twitter and check out the pinned tweet in the meantime until next time be good to each other yeah.